the whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Hi, this is Sean Cahill, and you're listening to that UFO podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and you are here for one thing and one thing only if you're listening to this. It is the interview with Anthony LePay, executive producer of Unidentified Season 1 and now Season 2. Season 2 premieres on July 11th on History Channel, 10, 9 Central Time and the 45 minutes coming up with Anthony is one that I certainly did not waste any time with. So folks, again, thank you very much. Just so you know, this week uh, there will be the Skinwalker Watch Along release at the weekend as a Patreon early access exclusive. Consider supporting the show if you like what you hear. It's Remember, it's going to be free for everyone all the time, but it's not free for me to produce. So again, any support you guys can throw the show's way would be greatly appreciated at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast. And more bonus content as Patreon early access coming this July as well. Folks, without further ado... Episode 10, for your listening pleasure, is Anthony Lippe, executive producer of Unidentified. Last year, the Unidentified team put out a call to military personnel to hear their encounters. Now, the floodgates have opened. Are you nervous? A little bit, yes. I've never talked to anybody publicly about this story. These are individuals who have served their nation honorably. Air Force Major. 115 combat missions. This thing with an inch over the wing. It just shot straight up and was gone. The new season of Unidentified premieres Saturday, July 11th at 10 on History. Hi folks, you've just heard a promo for season two of Unidentified Inside America's UFO Investigation, which premieres Saturday 11th of July, 10, 9 central. And I want to welcome to that UFO podcast, the executive producer of season one and season two, Anthony LaPay. Anthony, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Andrew, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you. Uh, you're someone who's drummed up a lot of excitement uh, and it's been great kind of going back and forward with Kirby at the network who's put this together for us. So big shout out to her as well. Um, Anthony, time is limited, so I want to get straight into kind of having a chat with you. Can I just ask, first of all, what as an executive producer, what exactly do you do in your day to day role? My role as executive producer is... I am responsible for the alpha and the omega of the show. I, um, you know, worked a lot uh, with Tom DeLonge in the in the beginning of as as we created the show to uh, develop the mission and uh, the look and the feel. And then it's sort of been up to me to and I have an amazing team, but uh, you know, res- responsible for all this the ultimately for the stories that we pick um, and the uh the the investigation itself and uh the veracity of the stories 
Awesome. So before you got involved with the project, I just want to ask, what were your thoughts in general on the UFO subject? You know, I had always tracked the disclosure project in the early in the early 2000. I, I mostly come from someone who's covered politics, um, but I also spent a lot of time looking at the uh, intelligence agencies and the CIA and government secrets. So I've always been fascinated and that's what really first in the in the early 2000s um uh that that now famous national press club uh event where former government people uh uh came out a lot of military people came out and and said you know this is a real issue um that for me caught my interest and and i think that's why i was so interested when uh amy approached me to do this show because um, the military and the intelligence angle to UFOs is, I just th- I think, fascinating. And, and I think we all we always said we don't want to we're not saying we're dismissing uh, civilian observers, but there is something very, very interesting about trained observers uh, reporting um, aircraft that they can't explain. Um, when they've been trained um, and in uh, to to be able to identify enemy and friendly aircraft, um, and as well, you know, they have uh, they are you know very often drug tested, uh, psychologically tested, and the risk that they take to to their careers makes it to me a uh, you know a very interesting fact that you have military people coming out and saying they're seeing these things that that are appear to be doing things that they uh, that can't be explained by conventional technology absolutely there's a weight and credibility behind any kind of military witness or or police officer or someone in law enforcement that you just don't get with a civilian a civilian sighting and it's maybe a necessary evil that some people in ufology have to put up with because this does really seem to be taking things forward to the next steps as we've we've seen with recent kind of activity in the US government um how did you get involved then with the project itself so just coming up to before even season 1 began filming yeah i mean it's a pretty simple story i was doing a film about bobby kennedy for the history channel and uh i was there and they they came in and asked that, you know, they'd known I had done shows for Viceland and other uh, channels that were really looking at intelligence agencies and and, uh, kind of secrets. And uh, so it kind of just fit uh, the kind of programs I've done in the past. And, you know, I just and when they I I said when they said, hey, what do you know about UFOs? I said, you know, not a lot. And then they told me who they had access to and that we were going to be able to follow uh, Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon around. And I was like, wow, that's and then I met those guys and um, and they kind of just blew my mind what they were saying uh, about both their experience, but also sort of like what their mission was. And I was like, wow, this is just they're just incredible. There's such fascinating characters. I just wanted to, you know, go on a journey with them and see what happened. And that's what it's been. It's been a really about a two year journey just following these guys, uh, which it had an incredible, you know, culmination in this last couple of weeks. It, it's so the timing of the the Senate Intelligence Committee's uh, recommendations to, to set up this task force has is is really just a you know kismet that it happened right before we were going to air. But it really is a culmination, and we can maybe talk about this later of all the work that they've been doing behind the scenes, which is some of which you begin to see uh, more of in season two. Yeah. I, I- 
I think anyone who is a conspiracy theorist, and I'm sure there's quite a few listening to this show, just given the nature of the topic, the timing is absolutely incredible. And yeah, the, the culmination of what we're seeing in the Senate is definitely massively to do with, with TTSA and what they've done and, and this show in general. Now, season one, I, I've genuinely never seen a piece on the topic that I'm really passionate about in UFOs done as well as the unidentified. It was like someone went into my head and found the tone I was looking for you know, the atmosphere, the right music, the right people. Um, so for you, what were some of the highlights of, of recording and shooting season one? Oh, thank you so much for saying that. I really appreciate it. Uh, really, the highlights for us were, were getting, um, you know, Fravor and his wingman, and even more importantly, the Roosevelt pilots uh, to go on the record. Um, but really, one of the, 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 the story that really blew my mind most was the the Mexican uh, fishermen and scientists that we met down in Baja uh, who established that there's just this ongoing pattern and it's sort of part of their everyday life down in those waters near Guadalupe Island off Baja, California, that uh, this has been going on um, for years uh, outside of the, the, the Navy sightings. That, that was just fascinating uh, when you start putting those patterns together and getting those corroborating witnesses. How much were you involved with being on site with the crew? Were you always there, particularly, I'm guessing, season one and into season two? Or are you someone who stays more remotely and has people kind of doing that aspect of the job for you? Yeah, I'm blessed with an incredible uh, co-executive producer, Jesse Phillips, and some other great field producers who did a lot of the work out in the field. In particular, Jesse was the one who went to Mexico uh, last season. Um, but I'm there for all the kind of master interviews. Um, and actually that's a good segue into the kind of the big difference of what happens in season two this year is really in season one, we looked at kind of three big tentpole stories. Season two is almost exponential, uh, in terms of the, the number and quantity of stories that we have, uh, for you guys. We, at, I don't know if you remember, but at the end of every episode of season one, we put out a call to action for military and intelligence personnel to contact us with their stories. And we got thousands of emails from people. Um, so I spent most of last summer sifting through these emails, which was incredible reading. I mean, the stories that people were telling us were absolutely mind-blowing. And, and then we pared those down. Um, to kind of a short list of about 50 accounts. And then we reached out to many of those and kind of vetted those stories, figured out who were going to be the best storytellers and kind of looked at, tried to establish certain patterns and themes that we were going to look at in this season and ended up, um, I don't have the exact number, but around 25 never before heard stories um, from uh, everyone from, uh, Navy pilots, Air Force pilots, uh, FAA contractors, uh, NORAD commanders, uh, NSA spooks, um, Army uh, um, radar and communications experts, the list uh, and and uh, uh, commercial pilots. We have several uh active commercial pilots for major legacy airlines who have come forward as well this season. Um, in addition to 
um, some really interesting things that happened on a mission that Elizondo goes on down to South America, uh, where he meets with um, the head of the Air Force of uh, a, a nation in South America, um, as well as other members, uh, former and active duty members of military uh, uh, forces in South America. So the breadth of this season is is really huge. Uh, we're looking at historical uh, cases. We're looking at current cases. Um, we're looking at new videos that have, have come in. Um, we, you know, people have been just, we've, you know, TTSA and Elizondo, as well as my team have really become, uh, the point people for, uh, a lot of people to kind of reach out with their stories. And it could be overwhelming as you can imagine trying to sift sort of, you know, reality from fantasy, um, and trying to find the people who have the most verifiable stories and, and, and are the most, ver you know, credible characters. Uh, but that it was just an incredible ride. There's just there's so much story in this season. I think people, uh, especially, you know, uh, you know, the big thing we did with Unidentified is we tried to make a show that that someone like yourself who kind of lives for this um, would appreciate. But but it's a fine line, right? We can't go we can't go so into the details and speak in you know, a language that only you understand. We have to, we really tried to make something for a broad audience as well. Um, so that was, I think one of the biggest editorial challenges is, you know, obviously even, even in season one, there's many more details about the Nimitz incident and the Roosevelt incident we could have gone into, but, uh, you know, we had to, um, you know, fit it into an hour long program and we had to make it something that, that people can't overload people with too much information. Yeah, and I, I loved about season one that someone like myself, I, I had followed the story and I'd followed TTSA from its inception. And I know I know some of the frustrations in the kind of UFO community, if you want to call it that, that they knew these stories already. But like you say, this, this isn't the purpose of this. This is to kind of speak to people like myself, but also there's a, a wider audience that needs to kind of hear this story and needs to hear these stories. And that's how things are kind of going to move forward. And like you say, I think the show does a really good job in walking that fine line. And it's something that a lot of other shows just totally miss the mark with. Um, and I'm not just saying that, like I say, Unidentified really for me is right now the standard bearer for what a UFO documentary has to be. There's a lot of good stuff out there, but it's absolutely hit the mark. So it's great to hear that season two is kind of taking that up a notch. So what are some of the most difficult aspects of recording a show like The Unidentified then, like season one and season two? What what sort of changed? Uh, what what changed between season one and season two or what's what are the difficult aspects? Sorry, I didn't catch it. Uh, so we'll go with what are the most difficult aspects, first yeah. off, of recording a show like Unidentified. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you can imagine, uh, you know, uh, many, many UFO encounters and sightings uh, happen without any kind of real tangible uh, evidence uh, to back them up because they happen very quickly. Uh, sometimes only one person. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, we have, you know, many, several of the stories where we're able to get corroborating witnesses. Some of them uh, happened, you know, a long time ago and people don't remember or we couldn't track people down. So, you know, or people or at the core of the, the, the challenge of doing shows about UFOs is people don't want to be associated with, with an, a story that may 
shed, uh, may not look, make them look so good. Right. So that, you know, our challenge is no different than anyone who's ever, uh, ever uh, touched this, this issue. Um, people, you know, are reluctant to talk. Um, they're, they're scared about their reputations, both personally and, uh, professionally. So those are huge barriers. And, you know, there's a lot of government secrecy, um, what one of the, the most fascinating parts about working on this story and is challenging as well is that, you know, Elizondo and Mellon are still very actively involved in the process of working with the government to get this information out. So they're, they're both very real limits to what they can say uh, based upon their non-disclosure agreements and their, and their, um, oaths of secrecy uh but there's also there there also uh and you 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 know we try to be as transparent as this uh as we can as we as you get into season two you can see that these guys are working behind the scenes i mean the language that uh is in this, this new uh appropriations bill that was created by the senate select Intel, uh, uh committee on intelligence uh, was was language that uh, Mellon drafted, and even in season one, I think there's a scene where he's set. He showed he's he's drafting. He literally, we were in his office while he was writing this language last year. So um, these guys are still very very involved in this this uh, issue. Um, they have very close contact with the people who are still in the the this new program that exists course we've known about you know elizondo has talked about this program uh from the beginning that that a you know sort of a tip was no longer but that was lived on on a different under a different name and there's there's a it's even a more kind of robust multi-agency um operation that's out of the navy um o and i now so um you know what's been fascinating about this is you know Everything that I think Elizondo has said has come to fore. Um, yeah. A lot, you know, it was really surreal being in the middle of the Pentagon denying that, uh, you know, he ran the program and then seeing those sands shift uh, kind of on a month to month basis. And now, you know, I think it's, it's going to be perfectly clear that um you know what Mellon and Elizondo have said uh, they're doing is is exactly what they're doing and and that is working you know a lot of people they are very open that they are working directly with you know they're not getting as far as i know neither of them are drawing salaries from the government Lou Elizondo is separated from the military uh as um but uh they still are very very involved uh, with the, the people who are involved in this effort, both on the legislative branch as well as the intelligence and military branch. Is there a massive creative challenge for someone like yourself when you have to work with people at that level of government who still have security clearances and still have NDAs and particularly someone like Lou is very, very patriotic and talks about his oath a lot. Do you find that challenging, but is it quite a refreshing challenge that you have to work around when filming? Yeah, yeah, it's very challenging because, you know, they are trying to be pretty careful about what they're what they say. And, um, you know, I think there he was under a lot of stress as well uh, while filming because it was right in the middle of that whole 
bizarre controversy that that and, and I think he was very very upset by that because it really you know this guy had risked his life I mean he had uh really a dual career he had one career uh that was this um UFO uh program and but his real career was uh counterintelligence and for most of that after 9-11 was involved very much with uh hunting down some of the world's most dangerous terrorists. So I even met uh, some of the guys who he worked with in that portfolio who didn't know about the other portfolio. That's how kind of separate and secret his world uh, is or was. So uh, this, you know, he he really, really, truly believes that, you know, he had to walk away from that world and that career because he felt so strongly about uh, the UFO issue that and, and that it is something that it poses a potential threat to us all and that he had to kind of walk away to to get the uh, attention that it needed. Yeah, I think the Louise Elizondo autobiography will never be written, but it would be one of the most fascinating books you could read, I think. Uh, a lot yeah, of redacted, redacted, redacted. Exactly. I think. He, he said it would be a 500-page book of black pages that started with, I was born in Miami, <laughs> and the rest of it would be black. Even his childhood is probably redacted, if you know a little bit about it. <laughs> I am. Um, I've never hidden the fact I'm a fanboy for TTSA, and I love what they do, and I think it's really admirable, and I think it's taking the right steps. But I, w- I would still buy that book. I, I would buy that. Um, somebody, so- if somebody is going to write that, and it's going to be an amazing bestseller because uh, even what you've learned and unidentified is touching the, is the tip of the iceberg in terms of the, the life he's led. So I think there's a whole other series for you to get get <laughs> on there with the History Channel and any network on the Lou Elizondo, the person. <laughs> We'll have to put him under hypnosis or something to get it out of him. Yeah, you do what you have to do to get that done. So from season one to season two, thinking of them both as a whole, did the vision change or has the vision changed from what was planned at the beginning to what's come to be the final product? And I suppose you can talk about both seasons separately there. Yeah, I mean, season one was uh, very targeted, looking taking the three videos and really trying to explain what was going on there. Um Whereas season two, we had internally a sort of uh, um, catchphrase that described it, was, uh, which is out of the shadows. Um, and because we had so many people come out of the shadows to us that the floodgates were sort of opened. So the, the, the scope is much wider Um, And we're going so much deeper into the patterns that these guys have been seeing over time. I mean, one of the episodes, uh, we begin back in Vietnam and hear some never before heard stories of UFO sightings during the Vietnam era and kind of take you through different conflicts where UFOs have been seen that people really haven't heard about, including uh, Afghanistan. Um, And then... We are also looking at oh, we have a whole episode on civilian sightings uh, of, of um, civilian pilots, that is, and FAA NORAD. Uh, we have another um, episode that's looking at um, 
amateur and and everyday civilian sightings and kind of looking into what was happening in Colorado and the great drone swarm kind of controversy there. Um, we are, and then we have this really fascinating trip to South America where I don't want to give away which countries we went to, but we went to three different countries in South America and saw this very, very interesting, uh, reception that Elizondo got from the militaries in these countries, um, both people who are looking at the UFO issue, but also just the air forces, um, uh, you know, themselves, including the head of the air force in, in one nation down there. So that was fascinating. Um, it's really, um, as I said, we really go into a much bigger look at the phenomenon. Oh, and then, of course, we're also looking at new information about the Nimitz and the Roosevelt cases. So the, there's some new witnesses that we're talking with um, and new information that has come to fore about possible explanations, about ongoing sightings, about the question of um, the government being involved in covering up information about those. And another uh, case that we learned about um, that happened around the t same time frame, but inland um, and with army helicopters, which is a fascinating, fascinating story that uh, I don't think anyone's heard before. What was it like working with the TTSA crew? We hear a lot about Lou Elizondo, and if, if this series had a main character, Lou is definitely that person, and he, he's the right person, but what are the roles of the other TTSA members, such as Tom DeLong and Chris Merlin, as the series goes on? Yeah, uh, well, Chris um, played a similar role as he did in season one, though. We have actually a whole episode where uh, Chris goes on his own journey um, about a topic that he is intimately fascinated with, and that is the mystery around uh, triangle shaped UFOs and what those may be. Uh, so we have some, again, some never before heard recent sightings of giant triangles and, uh, as well as some historical cases, uh, from the Gulf war era, which are fascinating. Um, and that's an issue that Mellon is really, really interested in. And so that's kind of his kind of personal vision quest, uh, but then, you know, he's weighing, we, you see him throughout the season, um, as he does talking about the, the big kind of global, uh, issues around UFOs, the, the political and the national security issues that these, uh, patterns, uh, raise. Um, we're also, Steve Justice is also there, um, playing a similar role as he did in season one where he's, um, uh, looking at the technology uh, uh, from an aviation expert point of view. Um, and we hear from Hal Putoff and Jim Simivan as well uh, this season. And Tom uh, is there as well. Tom really, you know, is the kind of grandmaster of their whole team and uh, has been, you know, super helpful and involved uh, with helping us kind of shape the vision and the look and the feel and the vibe for the show as, as we move forward. Awesome. Um, have you ever shared your thoughts on the three videos and what you think they were? Wow, that's a good question. I don't want to, I'd say, I want people to watch the show. I don't want okay. it to be the, become the focus of, of speculation in terms of what I believe, because that I think may um, 
you know, influence how people watch the show. Um, we really tried to, you know, do a show that looked at all aspects of possible explanations. Um, though, you know, as you know, this show really is a, in some ways a follow doc uh, that's following Elizondo and Mellon's missions and their lead and the, where the patterns that they're looking at. Uh, but, uh, I, yeah, I don't want to inject too much of my own opinion about things because I don't think it matters. I think what, what's most important is people watching this, uh, agnostically and making up their own minds, or you don't have to make up your own mind. I think that's, what's so fascinating about, uh, this topic is like a great murder mystery. You can believe, you know, believe the, it, totally in one you can be watching our show and and flip your opinion three times because it, it's such hopefully the storytelling is so interesting and compelling and we're really trying to show you i think i mean uh i think that's to not to disparage other ufo shows but obviously the legacy of ufo television has always been to purport one side of the story um, and, to, uh, whereas we are trying to give a real 360 view of everything from, and that includes, uh, really looking at, uh, questions where the, some of the questions that we raised in season one about what the intelligence agencies have, uh, are doing and with UFOs are, is this part of a larger project to, um, hide secret programs or something even more nefarious. You know, those are questions that need to be asked and you have to ask those questions about Elizondo. You still cannot not ask the question of a guy who was a trained counterintelligence officer ab about what his motivation is. Those are, those are super valid questions. And that's what makes this show so fascinating and the story so fascinating because there is so much mystery around who El Lou Elizondo is, what his agenda is. Same thing with Chris Mellon. I think people are going to learn a lot more by just being with them on their journeys and, and hearing their unguarded moments and hearing their feelings and opinions as things happen in real time. And I think those are, you know, without us, you know, trying to shove a particular uh, opinion down your anyone's throat. I think you're going to everyone's going to be able to experience it and make their own conclusions about their motivations, about what they really believe. That one of the things one of the things that I'm most excited about this season is Andrew. I think you really in season one these guys uh, definitely spoke a lot more. Let's say like politicians around this issue. Where in season two, I think there's a lot more transparency about what they believe. And I think we got them to speak a lot more openly about what they truly believe. So I would say, given what they've done the last couple of years, they've, they've given themselves that platform, haven't they, with the way they've pushed and changed the narrative of what they're talking about. So that's that's amazing to hear. So I look forward to that. So something that we, we can't not touch on because it's affected everyone just now is how did the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic affect or change production? Yeah, I mean, we got very lucky because we were about 90 percent done shooting the show uh, when COVID hit. Um, so we just had some things that we had to pick up. Um, we had, you know, it's kind of some funny element. You know, we tried to not do m as much on via Skype 
uh, no offense, Skype or Zoom, you know, it's just not a great medium. As you know, our show is we tried to make it very cinematically um, engaging. So as a filmmaker, it was pretty frustrating to have to kind of go back to that medium. So we did some creative things with film shooting, uh, sending cameras around to different people. We even had uh, one of the most frustrating parts is we were just about to shoot our kind of final interview with Chris Mellon but before everything got shut down. So we had, we enlisted some of his sons that we sent some cameras and luckily he has got some kind of uh, young sons who are uh, very technically adept who were able to help us shoot an interview at their house. Uh, so we didn't have to resort to a, you know, a webcam. Um, so we had to find, come up with creative solutions like that. I think that, you know, the biggest, uh, uh, for me, it was very difficult trying to put these complex stories together remotely, working with all these editors who are working at home and, you know, all my, the same issues everyone has had. I mean, I, what we've, I have a lot of producers with kids at home and, you know, one of my producers who was fantastic, his wife, uh, is a very high level person at the, in new here in New York city at the department of health. And she's literally on the conference calls with Fauci and the mayor and the CDC while he's in the other room trying to, you know, get this show produced. So many all like everyone in America, um, you know, we had to overcome a lot, but I think we were all feeling very blessed to have jobs in this time. And, uh, you know, we were very appreciative to be able to, and uh, we're very dedicated. I have a credible, very dedicated team that really wanted to keep that quality that you saw both cinematically and editorially in season one. We didn't want to, we didn't want to step anything down. We wanted to step it up. And I think hopefully we have. Thinking back, you mentioned earlier, you went through a lot of emails and correspondence from people who'd got in touch with that testimony, that call to arms that you put out in season one. Is there anything that didn't quite make it into the final edit of the show, either that you did film and just it didn't make the cut that you would have loved to have seen, but just for whatever reason didn't make it? You know, that's a tricky question because I don't want to go into too much. Um, there are a couple stories that unfortunately we just um, didn't have time uh, to fit in. And I, I'm very appreciative of the, the guys who you know participated. Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry they didn't make the cut. It was just more, much more of a time frame. But I'll tell you this: this is this is one of the the most interesting uh, kind of ghosts that I chased from the emails. We didn't actually put this on camera, but I'll put it this way: there were some very interesting NASA-related leads that came in that really uh, were fascinating, but we never could. Either there were several leads, but we couldn't convince the person to either go on camera or there just wasn't enough there to kind of bring the story to the fore. But that was very interesting. Um, uh, NASA stories related to not, uh, let's just say, uh, not the Apollo era, but more recent uh, NASA uh, stories. So that was frustrating and tantalizing, maybe season three material. Uh, definitely, you know, we're, we have some very interesting sources there that we're continuing to talk to. That, that is a plug and a half for season three, let alone season two. So, yeah, that, that sounds amazing. <laughs> and have you got a few words that if you could sum up season two, what, what can people look forward? You've talked a lot about it and it's been incredible to hear what's coming up. But just a few words that are really going to kind of tease people into watching season two. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's that I think they did a promo that said this. It's really the floodgates are open. You're going to hear so many stories that you've never heard before about craft that both fit in patterns um, and also are very anomalous. Uh, you're going to really get to know Chris and Lou in a way that, you know, you, you began to in season one. But I think, as I said before, you're really going to get to understand their motivation, truly what they believe is going on in a, in a way that uh, we didn't in season one. Um, and I think you're going to walk away, whether you're a, a UFO expert like yourself or just an everyday viewer, you're going to walk away really kind of understanding the patterns that have been seen going back, um, both in terms of like the shapes of what's been seen, the movements, all those things that Elizondo has kind of categorized under the observables, um, how we're seeing those patterns happen, whether and and also, you know, this connection to nuclear assets is fascinating and and somewhat terrifying. We have a whole episode with some new stories around connections to nukes that I think people are going to find very fascinating. I think that is one of the the subtexts of their concern, both if you uh, Mellon and Elizondo is, you know, why are these things repeatedly being seen around our most powerful weapons? Um, that is, I think, probably at the height of their concern. So you're going to see, you're going to learn a lot more about uh, all of those things. Incredible. Listen, um, Anthony, I've got four listener questions. Um, I, I would have had more, but I put this out just to Patreons um, because there was a lot of interest in you coming on the show. So uh, the first one was from Mark, and he does have two questions. One of them is a pretty short answer, I believe. The first one, is there any more videos going to be in the new series like the Tic Tac UFO video? Yeah, uh, the question is yes and no. Uh, there are no, obviously, there are no new government videos uh, coming out and there's I to be honest nothing uh, as compelling and fascinating as those videos being captured on those gun cameras uh, but we do have a lot there are several new videos some of them never been seen before that uh, we do look at the other thing that's interesting sorry I forgot to mention this is one of the other interesting things that we, we get into is sort of the beta stage of a project that TTSA has been working on called The Vault. I don't know if you've heard about that, but they, yes. they are working with a, uh, a very, very brilliant uh, artificial intelligence programmer. And we, we begin to put that to the test with looking at some video evidence. Uh, and that's really interesting um, because it's, uh, it's still very much in beta stages, but you can see how that's going to be able to um, work with looking at video evidence. Yeah, really excited for, for more on the Vault and the, the Scout app that's uh, being talked about on the TTSA podcast just now. And those are yeah. definitely worth people checking out as well. I believe episode four is going to be this week or next week. Um, so, yeah, those again tying in a lot of different mediums for the project. Mark also wanted to know, he's one of our listeners in the UK, when will the series be shown in the UK? Oh, I'm sorry, I don't have the answer to that question, um, but uh, I'm sure someone can provide that to you. Maybe they check back with you on your blog or something, we can give you that answer. 
yeah, as, as soon as I find it out, I'll let the listeners know. I'll, I'll make sure I find it as soon as it's released US time anyway. There's ways and means. And of course, I always watch it when it's back on in the UK as well for the viewing for the viewing numbers. Um, so we've got Dan said, uh, thank you, Anthony, for your work. How much input does To The Stars Academy have in production and edit of the show? And did that relationship change for the second season? That's a great question. Um, we they are obviously very involved um, because we are really kind of following them. You know, we're it's it's some as I said in the television world we call it a follow doc. We're really following them on their mission and taking their leads. Though a lot of the sources that you know is sort of a group effort in terms of locating the sources. A lot of these guys contacted Elizondo directly, and then but a lot of them also came through our call to action and developed some of the other sources my producers had developed over time. Um, ultimately, uh, the network has final editorial control. Um, those guys were able to, um, you know, make sure that they, they, there wasn't any security violations or that, uh, we weren't making, you know, they were very helpful in making sure we weren't making any mistakes, um, in terms of, you know, technologies or national security uh, around national security issues. But, um, you know, this is, you know, this is a work of journalism that, uh, ultimately is, uh, produced by A&E television. And um, though the, we have a very good working relationship with those guys, uh, but they don't have censor power, in other words. No, that's great. And you've got to thank A&E for taking on a project like this as well. Just like you touched on earlier, it's something that can be a bit of a tainted subject, depending on the narrative that's been, been shown. But what the job that's been done is incredible. Um, Craig had a question for you. Um, were you present during any time of the shoot that something strange, ha- strange had happened? You know, I was not. Uh, I was not out in the field as, uh, as much this season as it was last season because there was just so much. Um, so, yeah, no, there. Uh, this season we didn't really have. Last season there was some kind of interesting things that happened on their on their boat trip down to Mexico. I heard. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, we did not have any uh, sightings. Awesome. Thanks for that question, Craig. And the last question, uh, I say a listener question. It's actually someone you worked with on season one, Sean Cahill. So um, I've been lucky to kind of have Sean Cahill on as a guest in the podcast in its early days. And I got in touch with him and he sent me over a question. Yeah, he's a brilliant brilliant guy. Oh, I love Sean. Um, So, Anthony, if you were given an unlimited budget, how would you take the last few years data and testimony that's been collated and present it in a way that it's most impactful? Mm, that is a good question. If I had an unlimited budget, I think, uh, and, and time, I think, you know, when you're making television, you're, you're, you're also on, you both have budgetary limitations, but those budgetary limitations are also tied to a calendar. You have to get on the air. So a lot, you know, of anyone who's really looked at this, this world is an investigated, uh, government secret. Sometimes it takes years to uncover these things of FOIA requests and working sources and really traveling back and doing that gumshoe kind of work. If I had the unlimited resources, I think I would, uh, you know, take the time uh, to really be able to just do deep, even deeper dives into um, and, you know, meeting for every one person you meet on 
ca uh, camera, there was 10 other people we were able to talk to, you know, in the world of television, you don't have that luxury. You have to, you know, really get out there and get things on. So I think there's, there's so much more to these stories because for every story that we've heard, there's, you know, probably multiple, multiple other people. If we really had the time to find the corroborating witnesses and, uh, and other tangents and other, other, uh, uh, sightings. I mean, that is one of the things I think you'll, you'll, when you watch season two, you'll learn that, uh, it's almost a limitless topic. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of these stories that go back in time and that are happening concurrently. So, you know, you, you could just continue doing this for the rest of your life and you would, you'd still would only get a small percentage of the amount of stories that there are. I'm also fascinated just about the global aspect. I think, uh, going to South America was just fascinating. We actually even talked to some indigenous people in South America who for, for them, UFOs are kind of part of their cosmology, uh, which is something I think, uh, Sean Cahill will be very interested in. Uh, so those are some of the deep questions that I'd be fascinated by what's going on around the world. And also just really being able to dig in deeper to taking, taking the, some of these stories that we've heard and really digging in and finding out whether there's, there's other patterns that we could find. Awesome. Uh, thank you to the listeners for their questions. Anthony, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I really do appreciate it. And I would love to speak to you again once the series is finished and it's out there and kind of get your thoughts on the, f the finished product. Uh, I'd love to hear. I would be great feedback to uh, to hear what you, you, you thought uh, as we reach the, uh, the final episode. Um, thank you so much for your support and your interest. And uh, I hope uh, everyone listening enjoys uh, the season and is fascinated by what we found as I was. Absolutely. Uh, Unidentified Inside America's UFO investigation premieres Saturday, 11th of July, 10 p.m., 9 p.m. Central. Folks, I don't have to tell you to be watching that one. I'm sure you will. Folks, I'm sure your appetite has been wet for season two. If you're listening to this before July 11th, not long to go. If you're listening to this after July 11th, then, and you haven't watched the series, get watching. It's going to be a good one. Folks, listen out for the next coming shows. We have a show on remote viewing that will be announcing very, very shortly, if it's not already on the Twitter feed. And also, we have a very famous abductee. I can tell you now, Calvin Parker, famously of the Pascagoula incident. That's hard to say with a Scottish accent. He will be on the show in the coming days, and that one will be getting released round about the middle of July, folks, as you listen to this. So again, thank you very much. Lots of content coming this July, and more and more guests getting lined up as we speak. Follow the show over on Twitter at UFO UAPAM. Follow on the Facebook page, That UFO Podcast. And of course, you can follow on Instagram, That UFO Podcast as well. Hope you enjoyed the show, folks. As always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little bit. Meditate again with Fatal.
met him. I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz.